And then I've also been a foster and adoptive parent. So we have five kids currently, three were adopted out of foster care, two biological, we've foster care for about 10 years. Um, and so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about specific strategies that you can use when kids have those histories of trauma. But before we get kids into the strategies, just to make sure we're always kind of on the same page, I'm going to give a really quick rundown of where I want you to be with me when it comes to understanding trauma, okay? So trauma is certainly an event. A trauma event is anything that's deeply distressing to somebody. It's not traumatization, traumatization, though, until that distress and that stress response hangs on and doesn't go away. And so when those symptoms of stress hang on and they change our behavior and they change our brains and our bodies long term, once the stress actually is done, right, like the trauma event is over but we still have those stress responses, that's when we talk traumatization. And trauma has this ability to change so much stuff in a brain and body. It can change how we think and process information. It can change our memory and our empathy and our language skills and our immune system and our inflammation markers, metabolism, genetics. Like Trauma can change tons of things in our brains and our body. And it's not something that we can just take a wait-and-see approach of. It's not something we can just naturally outgrow. But when our brains specifically haven't developed in kind of this space of trauma, then what happens is that specifically the stress response system that's buried in the middle of your brain, which is called the limbic system, when that gets developed because of trauma, it basically stays on. And that on position of the limbic system primes it to constantly stand for stress. And then if it finds possible threats, it is primed to then react to that possible threat. And those reactions are going to be symptoms of stress, specifically fight, flight, freeze behaviors. So that can be hiding, that can be just not showing up, that can be running, that can be work refusal, that can be oppositionality, um, it can be non-compliance or defiance, it can be aggression, it can be that kid who just sort of like manically spins in circles, okay? or knock stuff off of shelves. It can be kids who just cuss you out or who get super controlling. Like those are all, and there's so many more, but those are all symptoms of stress. What I want you to understand is that it is not your job as educators to teach a brain not to get stressed, okay? Because most of you have these kids for one year. And one year is not enough time to probably teach a brain, don't get stressed out, when that brain says, I've had lots of reasons to get stressed out in the past. What your job is when it comes to strategies is to say, you got stressed out, let me help you bring that stress down so we can move on with our day. So those are the strategies we're going to be looking at today. I am not wanting you to all become therapists, okay? I don't want you to do my work. I want you to do your work. So the strategies that we're going to look at are specifically strategies that you can use in a classroom, like a gen ed classroom setting, when it's one of you to 20 to 30 of them, okay? They are strategies that it's not going to be like you have to take 30 minutes for mindfulness and yoga on a regular basis, okay? And the goal of the strategies we're going to work with today are strategies that keep the train moving 
without leaving anybody behind. That's the goal of these strategies, okay? They are not to like sit one-on-one -on -one with this kid and have his brain through a therapeutic plan. They are to teach this kid's brain that life works differently when you are with me. And because brains change with repetitive experiences, that's what I want as the clinician. Because when a kid sets his foot into your classrooms and your school environment, and life looks different here with you, then they can learn new things that as the therapist I can help them understand and I can work through. Too often, if I'm being honest, I work with kids with histories of trauma that get more traumatized because of a school setting than healed, right? And so that's kind of the approach that I want you to come into this with. The other thing that I want you to understand is that when we look at these strategies, all of the strategies we're covering today, and these are not all the strategies that I can teach you, but all the ones that I have chosen to bring today, you don't have to be the most regulated to pull them off well, okay? In fact, you can be kind of a hot mess, and it might actually work for you too, okay? So we're gonna be realistic in this space today about what your capacity is and what you have kind of the time and the space for. But when a brain has been programmed to kind of stay in that stress response system and to stay activated, it might look like that kid goes from zero to 90 in a split second when the reality is they live at that constant 70. And it doesn't take as much to go from 70 to 90 as zero to 90. So we need strategies that work with them up here. The other realization of these strategies, and I said this in our last session, is that the brain is not a thinking organ. Please stop telling people that. The brain is not a thinking organ. The brain is a doing-reacting organ. It just so happens to have two parts that think, okay? Out of all of the parts to your brain, and there are a ton of them, only two of those parts think. They are the hardest to get to, and they are the slowest. And if you're stressed out, you might not be able to get to them at all. And the majority of strategies we use for kids assume they can think. That they can make choices. That they can think of a coping skill. That they can use their words or think of the consequence this is going to bring about. And then we wonder why those strategies don't work. <laughs> we can teach kids. You know how many times parents get frustrated? They'll come into my office and say, he knows his coping skills. He just won't use them. No, no, sweetie. He knows his coping skills, and then when he's stressed out, his brain can't access them. Okay? Coping skills are not designed to calm people down. They are designed to keep people from getting escalated. If you don't use them preventatively, they won't work. Have you ever tried telling a stressed out kid to deep breathe? I'm not going to deep breathe, right? Or you give them a stress ball and get thrown in your face, right? <laughs> of course it does. That's what brains do. Brains react to stress, okay? And they react really quickly. From the moment a brain po uh, processes possible threats to the moment it activates and engages in a stress response like fight, flight, and freeze, that whole process takes 50 milliseconds. And 50 milliseconds is not even enough time to get up here to your thinking parts of your brain and think of language, access coping skills, think of a consequence, anything like that. 50 milliseconds is enough time to move your body so maybe you won't die. And so we instead sit around rooms and we go, we can't figure out what reinforces this kid. What do you think would motivate him? Those strategies cannot work 
soon as they get escalated, they're no longer effective. Okay? So let's look at some different strategies today that we can add to your toolkit. Now, one of the things that I want you to understand, and we're going to kind of talk about regulation and arousal from a stress perspective, and connect this to trauma. Regulation is a word that's gotten thrown around a lot in education, and it's a great word. But regulation does not focus on whether or not you get stressed out. It focuses on whether or not you can recover from stress once you do get stressed out. So teaching somebody to regulate is teaching them how to recover once their brain goes whoop, right? 50 milliseconds is not enough time for you or me, no matter how great our skill set is, to do anything. But what we can do once their body goes up here is say, oh no, let's bring you back down. That's regulation. Not whether you get stressed out, but whether you can see and get stressed out and then recover from that. The other thing that I really tell you understand is that regulation is not the same thing as calm or quiet. We have conflated calm and quiet with kids that are regulated. Regulation is about being organized. Okay? And you can be loud and organized. You can be intense and passionate and moving a ton and organized. You can be very calm and quiet, or at least looking calm, and still and quiet and be very stressed out. Okay? So we're looking at organization, which has to do with really more, again, if we can be in this space in our brain. I actually want to discourage you from constantly trying to calm kids down because when kids are used to living in high levels of arousal, trying to bring them down to a calm state can actually feel really scary and it can create what we call the paradoxical effect, which means that the strategies that should have brought a kid down look like they pushed them up even higher. And it's not the strategy's fault. It's that the kid actually feels that it's so scary and stressful that they push really hard against it and then they'll overshoot. So if you've ever tried to do mindfulness in the classroom and then you have these couple of kids who you're like, oh my gosh, that, like, they're running around like crazy people. Or even if you've quieted a classroom down for, you know, silent reading or for an exam and now you have this kid that's just making weird noises over here. Um, if you've ever had a kid that started a medication, Intuitive, um, Guanfacine, Tenex, that sort of thing, and it looks like it made it worse, right? That's called the paradoxical effect. Most of the time that's short-lived, and as soon as the body gets used to that, they can participate in it. But it's often kind of a rough start. So let's talk about how you teach self-regulation, okay? The tricky thing is that in the United States in particular, we think that self-regulation can be taught by teaching kids to be independent. First off, self-regulation cannot be learned until at least 18 months of age. Babies cannot self-regulate. They cannot self-soothe. It's neurologically impossible. Some babies, because of temperament, can self-settle. And that's more of an easy baby who's like, I don't really want the pacifier, but fine, right? And stops crying. Or the baby's like, I don't want to like lay in this crib, I'd rather be held, but eh, okay, right? So based on the temperament, that's not something that can be taught. Some babies can naturally do that. Babies cannot calm their stress down if they've actually gotten stressed out independently until at least 18 months of age. They can learn to stop crying, they can be quiet, 
But what we actually know is that their stress hormones continue to escalate in those times. 18 to 36 months of age is one of the best windows for teaching self-regulation. Little babies can't even regulate their blood pressure or their temperature or their heart rate, right, without like a caregiver right next to them. So what babies can do at those early ages is called co-regulation, or sometimes we call it mutual regulation. That the caregiver steps in and says, let me take my body and help your body organize and settle. And that's what we want to be seeing, because self-regulation can only develop when we have had the luxury of a co-regulator to do it with us. Self-regulation is internalized experiences of repetitive co-regulation. And there are a ton of reasons we won't unpack today why fewer and fewer kids that come to your classrooms have not had the luxury of having had a co-regulator, which means they don't know how to self-regulate. So here's what kind of ideally from a regulation perspective we want to be happening. There's a really sensitive kind of period in infancy. I used to do research on this where I uh, play recordings of other babies crying and then see how much it stressed out this baby in front of me and I look at their heart rate. It was all IRB approved. It was okay. But. <laughs> um, and so there's this period in infancy where babies get stressed out about a lot. Or at least they look like they do. And so what happens is like every diaper change, big stress response. Every onesie over that head, huge stress response. And that is normal and that is healthy and that is good because it allows the brain very quickly to figure out what kind of world was I just born into. So on one extreme of that, we have a, a really attentive caregiver. Now, when I say really attentive caregiver, a good ideal caregiver gets it right about 50% of the time. Okay, that's what we're looking for. You don't have to nail this all the time. 50% is exactly what we need for almost every kid to make a really healthy, appropriate kid. Okay, so just kind of know that 50%. Plateaus, and then the system crashes. 
response? Why are mom and dad screaming from the other room? Like, why am I all alone in here? What is going on? And I stay here until I crash. And so that stress response system doesn't have the luxury of learning this. They have the luxury of learning this. And if that happens repetitively enough, which it often does, baby's brain will go, this is taking up too much energy. We're going to rewire and we're going to live up here. And so then baby's brain just learns to do this with stress. So again, they don't go from 0 to 90. They live at a constant 70. And so they do this with stress. So that's the kid who gets into the kindergarten classroom. Somebody bumps into them, and they punch the kid, right? They don't know how to ride those waves of stress. Nobody has been there to teach them to do it. And so they lack the capacity for self-regulation because it's a skill that can be taught. It just has to be taught in relationship. Now, I would argue it's not fair to you that your students don't have self-regulation, but I would argue that self-regulation is the most important kind of skill we can teach their bodies before they leave us, regardless of the age you teach. And we can learn this at any time, but it doesn't matter if you're 3 or 13 or the parent at 33, you still have to learn this within relationship. And so if you haven't learned this, and you're in high school, I really think it's important to teach. Like, I love academics, I love learning, I have enough student loans to prove that, okay? But I will be honest, I would much rather my kids know how to self-regulate than know anything about academics. And sometimes high school teachers will push back against that, like, that's not how the real world works, and I agree with that, but here's what I also know. I think it's a really good life skill to know how to get, like, stressed out and angry at work and be able to control yourself and not punch your boss in their face, right? And the real world doesn't teach that. The reality is is that you might be the only community left in this kid's life to teach them how to self-regulate. You may be the last co-regulator in existence for this kid. And if they don't learn it with you, there's no guarantees. They will learn it. And if they can't learn how to self-regulate, they can't do it with their kids. And there's just going to be, again, some of those repetitive cycles there. So kids who have that poor self-regulation, we might say that they have big reactions to small problems, right? We'll talk about how they have low frustration tolerance. That's some of the language you'll hear them use. Um, and so they have these like, smaller stress windows where they just can't handle as much. But if you want that to change, to widen, they can't constantly be breaking and melting down when they're with you. Because every time, if they come to you and they have a meltdown and get super stressed out and tip, we're making the problem worse, not better. So we have to be aware of what this kid's capacity is so that we can work within it in order to actually widen their tolerance of that. So we'll have the kids who have attention difficulties, who have outbursts that feel random, but they're really not, um, who have that low ability to kind of do anything that's self-soothing or you know handle frustration or do task persistence or things like that. Now, what I want to be clear on with you is when you see these big 
outbursts. These are not tantrums. They're what we would call meltdowns. Meltdowns are neurological, they're not behavioral, and they're not intentional. A tantrum is about the goal. The kid admires, who's like, I want that piece of candy, throws a fit, gets the candy, and the, the fit can stop, right? That's a really cognitive-based strategy, and it's an intentional one. Meltdowns are not about the goal. You could offer anything under the sun and threaten to take away everything under the sun, and it won't change the meltdown. Meltdowns are about the buildup of stress. And so what we can have is we can have a kid who has to go through you know, a school day where we might have like ride a bus, noisy hallways, take a test, be told to sit down, somebody bumps into me. And that melts them over, that they tick, right? And we see that response, that stress response. Don't focus all the time and all your energy on what that tipping event was. Somebody got into their personal space, okay? Too often we just try to patch those holes. Like, oh, that was the trigger. We need to now do social stories and teach them what to do when somebody gets into their personal space, which is lovely. But because meltdowns are about the buildup, you could have reorganized their day, and now maybe it's like, get up early, ride the bus, somebody gets into my space, I have to take a test, the teacher tells me to sit down, and now I have to build up. And now people look at that and go, oh, we gotta patch that hole too. Patching holes is great, and I think that that's an appropriate skill-based sort of strategy, but it doesn't get at the root of the issue, which is that these kids can't bring their stress back down and recover once we put it on their plate. If we teach kids how to recover from that stress, my goodness, you won the game. Like, then they can tolerate so much more and you won't see those same sorts of behaviors. Now, today when we look at um, some strategies, we're gonna connect these to levels of arousal, okay? So, the more stressed out you are, the farther back in your brain you go. So, when you're calm, you're in this prefrontal cortex as much as it's developed, you have access to all your brain, but this is in charge. This is the part of your brain that can think, that, um, that can have impulse control, and that can um, plan for the future, okay? So, like, really good executive functioning stuff here. Kids with trauma struggle to ever even find this, let alone hang out there. Level two is alarm. Level two, if we move to the frontal lobe, this is still actually a lovely place for them, because all of our logical stuff is in charge, math, verbal skills, logic, but we can still get to everything. The tricky thing with alert is that you can't stay here without at least small breaks, without continuing to escalate, which is why good educators know that you do like something tricky, something easy, something new, something old, something tricky, recess, you know, where you kind of like bring that up and down so that kids don't continue to tip. Sorry, it's fair. Access, or level three is alarm. That's what you've now opened up that brain and that limbic system is in charge. This is baseline for the majority of kids with those histories of trauma. This is where they live and why they seem so tippy all the time. They can still access all of their brain when they're here, but it's slower to get here. And so you'll see the reaction before you get to see the intention. And when we work out of here, what we will see, and you describe these kids perfectly, you'll say like, I don't want to poke the bear. Or I feel like I have to walk on eggshells around this kid, right? That's exactly what's going on neurologically. They're sort of hovering. And as long as things are going okay, they can get to those front parts of their brain and they can answer your questions and they can engage in a little bit of learning at least and look okay in their rooms. Um, 
they might look a little distracted, they might look a little anxious, they might need a few more reminders. But if anything triggers that stress response system within 50 milliseconds, whoop, they're gone. And you're like, where did that come from? That was the job of that brain. That's exactly what that brain was supposed to do, and it just did exactly what it was supposed to do. By stage four, we're living in fear, and so now this is more in this diencephalon area, and we're actually losing access to the cortical areas now, which means language is going to drop, logic is going to drop. This is not um, an easy place to work with, okay? So we're going to look a lot at strategies. These are not nice stair steps. It's more like an incline. We're going to look a lot today at strategies for level three, low four. By the time we get to a really strong four or five, that's more in our traditional crisis management programs, which is CPI or whatever it is that your school potentially uses. And in stage five, terror, is we are now in the brain stem. The brain is only reflexive. There is no access to cognitive areas. And the brain is saying, somebody here could die and you better fight so it's not you. This is not a good place to be. It is not a safe place to be. And it does not matter the age of the kid. The interesting thing is that they almost always look identical. It's just that it's a lot scarier when you look at five-year-old behaviors in a 200-pound body. Right? But the behaviors are almost identical most of the time. They can be meltdowns, actually. So most strategies that we are taught work really well for kids who can think. And they don't work well for kids who are not thinking parts of their brain. And so that's what we really need to kind of shift to kind of look at, because that's where a lot of those behavioral issues we struggle with continue to occur. So when we kind of make this shift, what I want to make sure that you kind of understand is I am not asking you to coddle kids. I'm asking you to be effective educators. I'm asking you to teach well. You know that if a kid is struggling academically, that you have to remediate. You can't just like hold the bar there and tell them to jump. Instead, you lower the bar to a place where that student can be successful. You put in the supports and the strategies that they need, and you teach. And then when they can hit the bar, you raise the bar. And you teach. And you raise, and you teach, and you raise. That's how we teach everything. It's by God's and scaffolding. So I would start out counting apples and not go straight into calculus, right? But when, for whatever reason, we look at behavior, we say, you're eight, here's the bar, jump. And then we get frustrated when the kid is not successful. Out of my classroom. When what we need to do is teach. And every other thing that we teach requires us to lower the bar to a place where a student can be successful, put in the supports and strategies they need, and teach there. But it's not coddling. Because as soon as they can consistently hit that bar, we raise the bar. And then we teach, and we raise, and we teach, and we raise. Right? They'll be caught when they left that bar there and they didn't need it that well. But as long as we raise it at their pace, we're actually going to be supporting their learning and their growth and their development. So a lot of times it's really easy when a, a behavior occurs to first question like, what consequence do I need to give? But I'm going to challenge you that a reframe with this is to ask instead, what experiences does this kid need to learn? What does this kid need to learn, and maybe even practice, to figure out how to do this differently? And then this becomes your consequence. You provide effective.
effective learning opportunities for that kid. And it might be then that it's something you do differently, not what the kid does differently. And that's still an effective learning opportunity that will actually teach so that we have a lower chance that that happens again. So we're going to give those experiences throughout the day in little ways. But the bar that is set low that can actually be hit successfully is always better than the bar that is too high that sets everybody up for failure. Learning cannot occur there, and we're making things worse. Now, the approach that I want you to take in to working with these kids, and this is borrowing from Heather Forbes' work, I'm not claiming it, is I want you to combine the personas of Mr. Rogers with an army general, okay? <laughs> Which means I want you to pull in the relationship piece without losing the boundaries. Trauma work does not get rid of boundaries, and in fact, trauma work may need tighter and more firm boundaries. So the Mr. Rogers is happy to see you neighbor. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited you are here. And I love like how hard you worked on that even when it was tricky. And the, the Army General says there are just some boundaries they don't let you cross. It's my first job to keep everybody safe and that was Everybody safe. I say this very, very often to kids I work with. My first job to keep everyone safe, that wasn't safe, so, and I tell them what we're going to do. The other thing I say very frequently, unfortunately too frequently, is don't worry, I won't let you hurt me. And maybe that's with a giant pillow in front of me and then backing around the room, right? Don't worry, I won't let you hurt me, as I'm using it as a shield. Or maybe as I step out of the room and say, don't worry, I won't let you hurt me, I'm going to step out. Because I have to keep those boundaries in place as well. If I can do the boundaries but not the relationship, that's when you're going to have kids that don't trust you and you're going to see a lot more oppositional and defiant behaviors come out. However, if you can do the relationship but not the boundaries, then you're a lover and play partner, but not somebody kids are actually going to trust to keep them safe. You have to be able to pull in both of those pieces. I can do the relationship and I'm your biggest cheerleader. But dude, there are some lines that don't let you cross. And you're going to know what those are. Okay. Now, if they do cross one of those safety boundaries, an appropriate consequence is separation from group. Okay. Separation from group can look a lot of different ways. And it's going to vary somewhat by age, right? So in a kindergarten classroom, it might be something like, dude, you are having trouble with nice hands, so I'm going to have you come hang out closer to me. Or like it's time in. That's separation from group. It may be, um, you know, taking a break in another spot in the room. It may be having to go work with a social worker. In more serious cases, for older students, it might be a suspension. For older students where safety violations are pushed, I can support 
only way to keep people safe. As long as you never try to tell me it made anything better. Right? Like, nobody gets suspended and comes back more regulated and ready to do relationships. Sometimes that is the line that has to be drawn to clearly communicate it is my first job to keep everybody safe and this is what has to happen to do that work. But as much as possible, we want to keep these kids as close to us as possible in the building, in the community. And even if we had to do a separation, as soon as they come back, we're welcoming them back in, right? And so we have to do that sort of work. So ideally, we prevent the escalation. Now, I work with enough schools to know that social workers can give you a ton of great strategies. Here's a couple of rules for you. One, please try the strategies consistently before telling somebody they don't work. And when I say just try them for a while, research shows we probably need two to three months of trying a strategy. Okay? So you trying that strategy for a day or a week, nah, like that's not cutting it. You need to really give it a good shot. The other thing to really recognize is quite frequently, if the strategies are meant to keep a kid calmed down, and they are not, then we need to do them earlier, we need to do them longer, we need to do them more frequently. Because a lot of times we have all of these strategies at our disposal, maybe even written up into a formalized plan, and we wait until the kid shows that they need the strategies to use them. If you wait until you can see that that kid needs a strategy before using it, it's too late, guys. If you wait until a kid is escalated to say, how about you use this calm-down box? It's not going to work. The other thing that I want to encourage you for with these strategies, okay, because you have been taught so many lovely strategies, so many schools are putting in safe spaces or calm-down spaces and sensory rooms and all of those lovely things. Make them universal. The last thing a kid with trauma wants is to look more different. Makes them feel more vulnerable. And so what I highly recommend instead is that you just take the classroom-wide strategies and you teach them to every student in your classroom and allow all of them to use them, and maybe you use them too. So let's say you built a safe space in your room or calm down the corner or something, which I think every class should have, including in high school. It just looks different in high school. And so you created this space, and then the first couple weeks of school, you write it into your lesson plan, and every single one of your students gets run through that calm-down corner at least two to three times. But So that they have the practice of what that looks like, it normalizes it, and honestly, so your body has the practice of what that feels like. But now let's say you put that strategy into place. Now you're having a tough day. And your students are annoying you. You know what would be lovely? It's for you to go to the front of the classroom and say, guys, I need to calm my body down. Why don't you pull out this worksheet, get out your book or whatever. I'm going to go to our break space. You go to the beef bag or whatever you created, set your timer, use the strategies, and then go back up more regulated and ready to teach. Your kids will learn much better through watching than by you telling. So use the strategies. Come in and be like, guys, I am frustrated today and way too tired. I think I should start with some deep breathing. How about we all do that together today? Right? And do it with them. When you normalize the use of those sorts of strategies, 
troublemaker kids, like, we just give you those things, right? They don't want to use them. So we make them inaccessible when we only push them in for our high flyer kids. But one of the reasons strategies become or fail is because basically kids become way too escalated and we don't use them soon enough. Another is that we don't teach them. If you are going to expect a kid to use a strategy, make sure you've taught the strategy when they're not stressed out. If you wait until they're stressed to try to teach them to use the strategy, it's not going to be an effective strategy. And then make sure you're lowering the bar, okay? If you are setting the bar here and kids are never successful, you probably need to change where the bar is raised and adjust that. The one thing I will say, though, about this idea of having kids separate from you for safety reasons is the more you do that, even though it might be done sometimes, realistically, I'm going to be very honest with you, the harder you make it for them to be successful when they're with you. Okay? Because if every time they're with you and they get dysregulated and you send them to the social worker's office who does the hard work of regulating them and then sends them back with you, they associate you and your body with stress and they associate the social worker with safety and regulation. So if that's what you choose to do, that's kind of your prerogative. But then don't get annoyed when the student's acting like a butthead in front of you and the social worker comes in and the student's like, oh, I'm good. Okay? <laughs> She's done the work. And if you constantly send that kid out, they are going to progressively get more and more escalated around you because you haven't taught them that you can handle it. You haven't taught them you're safe. Ideally, I want other people, because I'm not telling you you should always be able to handle this independently in a classroom. Like, I'm realistic about that, okay? But ideally, if we need other bodies, when it is safe to do so, I really want them pushing into the classroom, not pulling out. So I want that social worker, maybe, even if at first we have to pull out, maybe eventually we pull out right into the hallway. And then the social worker pushes in and regulates the kid at the back of the classroom while the teacher keeps going. And maybe even eventually, the social worker or the para takes over the classroom for a few minutes so that the teacher can do the regulation work. Because we need to teach that kid that this teacher's body is safe. Because the more opportunities you step in and you say, let me take my subtle body and help your unsettled body regulate, the more the student pairs your body with that work, and eventually, just you being there is enough to help keep them settled. I have done this so many times with kids, and with parents, and with educators, and it is amazing that when you do the hard work with these kids, all it takes for them, when they start getting escalated, is for you to step in, and you can see their body goes, it's gonna be okay. But if you send them out, every time that happens, they don't have the opportunity to learn that. So be aware of what you're doing if you're sending kids away. Now, the reality is that once a kid is too escalated, so back into these parts of the brain, there's really very little you can do about it. So that is, again, where we get into the crisis prevention stuff. That is where we have potentially had to do a room clear or call in a safety team or things like that. We are not going to... Um, cover that today because that is individual school specific and we don't have um, 
the time for that. But I will tell you, these episodes should be relatively short. And if they're not, it's probably because a grown-up is making them worse. And then sitting that kid back up. You know how we make it worse? By saying things like, honey, I need you to deep breathe. <laughs> Just one suggestion, okay? If you do have a kid that's escalated, either this escalated way or her just kind of escalated, one thing you need to know is that once a body looks like it's calm, it still needs about 20 minutes for the stress hormones to actually come down as well. So what will frequently happen in a school environment is that the kid will escalate, the adults think they calm that kid down, and then they sit in the back to do something else stressful, and the kid gets re-escalated. And then they think they calm the kid down, and then they sit in the back and they re-escalate, and we go through this pattern, and it feels to the adults like that kid just escalated over and over and over, when in reality, their brain never actually had a chance to come out of that stress zone. So if you have a kid who gets escalated, they need at least 20 minutes if you want them to be able to stay regulated and be successful to actually, before they re-engage kind of with the world. Now that doesn't have to be wasted space. That can be doing relationship work, that can sometimes be doing repair work, that can be doing work that may be easier for them, reading, you know, apps on a, uh, academic apps, different things like that, but just things that they aren't gonna find particularly triggering so that we can allow their brains to have enough time to actually deplete so that they can be successful after that period of time. If you decide that you need to change your expectation midstream, because you just realize that this kid is not going to be successful with that, okay? So, an example, let's say that you tell a kid, like, hey, I need you to go get those materials, and you can just see the stress come over this kid, right? You are allowed to change your mind and change the goal, but you need to verbalize it. That's the difference between the kid somehow controlling it and you being the one to stay in charge. You don't need to get into power struggles. You are the one in control. And this is not a power struggle because, oh, shoot, just a second. That's my pickup alarm. I'm supposed to be getting my kids from school. Now we're just finger crossed. My husband's actually doing it. It is okay to say, oh, I can tell that's too tricky for you right now to help, right? Oh, I can tell that that is going to be kind of hard. Let me do this for you. That is not, again, coddling. That is adjusting the bar so that you can actually help them be successful. The difference is, if you have a kid who just gives you a dirty look, and you just pretend like, I didn't see that, and then they still don't actually comply, that's them getting away with it. You staying in control is acknowledging verbally, that is too hard, I'm changing the rules. I'm changing where that bar is. That still sends a very clear message of you're the one in charge of this, and it sends another message of, I am so in tune with you, I want you to be successful. The reason you don't want to engage in power struggles, or that you really shouldn't even need to get into a power struggle, is because you want this kid to win. Like, you're on his side. If he wins, you win. You don't need to engage in a power struggle. Like, the whole goal is for this kid to be successful. And so you just find ways to help that success happen. So let's 
few strategies here that you can take with you. Sidestepping is kind of a fancy word for distracting. The bottom line for this one is don't feel like you have to push through an escalation to get to like a breakthrough moment where this kid is having their come to Jesus meeting and falling. Okay? <laughs> like, just distract, especially in a school setting. Just distract them. Because here's what I want them to learn when we're talking about regulation. I want them to learn that as soon as you step in, stress can go down fast. It's what they should have learned a long time ago. Okay? That as soon as you step in, stress can go down fast. I don't need them to learn yet how to handle whatever stressor that was or how to think about that or anything. I need them to learn to let go of stress. You don't have to stay up here. So if you step in and bring their stress down by telling them a funny joke, by asking them, hey, do you want to go get a glass of water? Or, oh, I have a snack. You want to share it? Or, oh, what's your favorite Pokemon? I don't care what you do, but if you can get them out of that stress quickly so that you can move on with the class, that is ideal. Because one of the first things that Brady needs to learn is that they don't just have to get up here and ride it out until it depletes. That they can get up here and actually bring it down. Okay? And so you stepping in and bringing that down with them, giving them that out, is an incredible strategy. One of the other strategies I want you to learn is the ninja style approach. Now, the reality is, is that the more we increase intensity, intimacy, and vulnerability, the more we decrease capacity of a kid. And we increase intensity, intimacy, and vulnerability all the time in schools. We are trained to do this. We are trained, especially early childhood people, we get down like this, and we open their eyes, and we talk in their space, right? That's so intense. It really is. And if you want a kid to be able to hold on to capacity, to do a task, to follow through, to handle apologizing, these kids hate apologizing. I didn't do it. She's in my way, right? Whatever it is. You need to be able to counteract that by decreasing intensity, intimacy, and vulnerability. So here's an example. You were going to basically kind of, a lot of times, turn your backs, and you were kind of looking at them over your shoulder. You're going to use a really nonchalant voice, and you're not going to make direct eye contact, and you are going to be in and out before they have a chance to freak out. Okay? You can do this, use this with redirections with behavior. You can use this with compliments. I know some of you have students who can't take a compliment. You can use this with academic corrections, right? So instead of like stopping by their desk and saying, oh, remember, for order of operations, we, which probably would result with some kids in a torn up paper, this is stupid, when am I ever going to need this, right? Maybe instead we see the issue and almost as we're past them, we sort of pause nonchalantly go, oh, remember, order of operations, we do in parentheses first, and then we're over here talking to this kid before this kid has a chance to freak out on us, okay? Let me share a real-life example of this. I had a kid in my home who I got a phone call from the school. I hate phone calls from the school. <laughs> anyway, picked up the phone. It was the principal. First, her dad was not our everything's okay, but turned out this elementary schooler had punched a substitute. Um... In this kid's defense, the sub had not read the IAP plan and, like, significantly kind of messed that situation up. But regardless, you don't hurt people, like, you don't do that in our family or at school, blah, blah, blah. The principal called and said, like, we've had time to regulate her, but we haven't had a chance for a repair. Would you be able to help with that? Absolutely. 
absolutely. So the kids come home. They're all sitting around the table, around the bar, and eating their snack, and all of them get up to go play, except this one who's kind of the slow eater that punched the teacher. And very intentionally, I stand over here and wipe this counter, and kind of over my shoulder to say something like, you know, we might want to make cookies for, and I listened to three educators, three staff members that had been involved in that incident. And I just keep cleaning counters, right? Out of the corner of my eye, I see her eyes get huge, like, what do you know? <laughs> and I just calmly say, like, do you want to do it now, or do you want to do it maybe after dinner? She quietly goes, how about after dinner? Okay. She goes out and plays, we do dinner, she comes back after dinner, when I start pulling out the cookie stuff, and we make our cookies, without talking about what happened. As the cookies are baking, again, I'm cleaning up the counter in the dishes, and I pass some, like, note cards to her, right? cards might be nice, and I keep cleaning. And she writes some lovely apology cards. Cookies come out of the oven, we package them up, tie the cards to them, we have a lovely bedtime. At some point I can call the school and I say, hey, she's coming in with cookies and cards. Can you have somebody there to facilitate that repair? They had a social worker waiting for her that helped her go around and deliver them. She felt confident and good because who doesn't love cookies? And you know what she learned? That she can mess up and she can fix it and she can stay in relationship, right? What do you think would have happened, though, if she had come home and I had looked at her and I said, the principal called? We wouldn't have done her hair. The evening would have been horrible. Holy I don't know if I would have gotten her to school the next day. The other thing I want you to notice is that not once in that situation did I talk to her about what actually happened. Why? That wasn't a cognitive decision that she did. I knew what happened. She knew what happened. She obviously knew that I knew what happened, right? Like, if I had sat down and been like, so I heard that you punched the principal, like, or the punched the teacher, like, can you tell me what happened? What is she going to tell me? This is one of the reasons I loathe the think sheets, okay? Because think sheets. Why did you do this? Because. What can we do so you don't do it again? Not do it? Right? Like, what is my kid or these kids going to say? Uh, my limbic system activated and I... <laughs> there is often no benefit to talking about that direct situation if it came out of a stress response. Now, what could have been beneficial, and I think what the school actually did later, was talk about how they could have maybe helped her, right? But they made that about them, not about her. Like, how can we do something different, not what you should have done differently? So that ninja-style approach can be incredibly helpful with kids. A couple of other strategies for you, Steve. One is pause, just the pause and wait, power the pause. Because that, and I mentioned this in my last session, because that stress response is so rapid, okay, you can have students that engage in a reactive behavior, and as long as you just back up and wait a second, they just take a couple extra seconds, get to those trauma loads, and they fix it. And then what you're looking at is actually the choice. That's the actual tension. But too often, we react to their reaction, which means we didn't even give enough time for the intentional behavior to come. So if it is not a safety issue, some of your kids only need a couple of seconds for you to pause. And so what that might look like is that might look like um, a kid where um, you ask them to do something and they go, no, 
Because a lot of kids, as long as you pause, will go, sorry, okay, and then they'll do it. Or even if they don't acknowledge it, here's what I see all the time. Their body is complying as their words are still telling you no. And you have to catch the fact that they're actually complying with what you ask them to do. And it's hard to watch bodies when we're so trained to focus on words, right? So I will watch kids all the time that are telling the teacher, I'm not going to do that. And the teacher is hollering at them for disobeying while their hand is complying, right? Make sure you focus on their behavior, not their verbal bonds. Because those words that come out of their mouth so reactively, it's verbal vomit. They don't have control over those. That is a stress response. So kind of really pay attention to that. If the pause is not enough, you can also prompt with redo or try again. So a kid gets sassy with you and you go, oh, redo. And you can do it playfully. You can do it nonchalantly, really casually. That kid slams papers down and you go, oh, try again. Right? And you just stay a non-threatening presence. I am not escalated. I am regulated. Fix it, dude. Right? And so you can do something like that. Another strategy that you can use is you can actually provide the behavior before or sometimes even after the inappropriate behavior occurs. So let me give you an example of this. If you provide the script before, it's because you know this is a repetitive behavior that you want to try to help. So this could be something like every time you tell the kid to walk back to their desk, they pop another kid on the back of the head. And like on the, on the way back to their desk, they just slap that kid upside the head. So what you can do instead is you are going to structure this, ideally for the whole class. And so you say something like, okay guys, in five minutes you're going to pause your bodies, because pause works better than stop. You're going to pause your bodies, you're going to put your materials back on the shelves nicely, and you're going to walk back to your desks and sit down without touching anybody. See how I structured that very specifically? Then you say it again. Okay, class, in three minutes, you're going to pause your bodies, put your materials back on the shelf, and walk back to your desk and sit down without touching anybody. Okay, class, in one minute. Okay, class, it's time to pause your bodies and you run through the thing again. Because you have said that repetitively and so specifically, that kid's brain has a significantly increased chance of being able to follow through appropriately on that behavior, even if they get stressed out and can't think. And so we just created an opportunity for success, and we created some muscle memory in that. Parents love this strategy, by the way. If it's after the fact, you can still use this. And so what it kind of looks like, and it's a hard thing to kind of visualize, but you basically let your brain or your voice in your body pretend you're the kid for a minute, to cue them, this is what I'd like you to do. So let's say that a kid bumped into another student and the students, the peers stuff, like fell down to the floor. If you pause them and we're like, oh my gosh, like you should apologize, right? And you're going to get that whole spiel of it wasn't my fault, they were in my way, and the kid's going to escalate. Instead, if we combine the ninja approach with this, we can do something like, oh, I'm so sorry to meet you, are you okay? And then walk away. And we just set out there with our tone of voice in our body, this is what you should do. If you know anything about mirror neurons, then you know that we have neurons, brain cells in our brain, that when we watch or imagine something, they activate. That's why I get, I don't like seafood, but every time I watch a Red Lobster commercial, I crave Red Lobster, right? Like, I think it's the butter. Like, I am watching these people enjoy this so much, that has to be, like, pleasurable. Then I get there, I've tried this multiple times. I get there and I'm like, oh, like, I can't, <laughs> whatever. 
the kid's brain will imagine themselves doing that very naturally. They might actually be able to comply and do it. But what happens if they don't? The reality is, even if they don't, because the mirror neurons went through it, they still have practice with it. Now, is that as good as if their body had actually done it themselves? No, but it's significantly better than stressing them out and getting them yelling at you, right? So just by setting that opportunity up, you can back away and still know that you were an effective teacher in that moment. Putting attention to unintentional behaviors is just the last one that I'm going to share with you. And this is not one that you'll probably use very often. But because those stress responses are within 50 milliseconds and they're so super speedy, they really are planning for the next like 30 to 45 seconds, okay? The limbic system does not think past that. That's the job of the prefrontal cortex. So if the brain says like, run and get out of here, it doesn't tell you what to do. So you can kind of hijack that system. So the next time you have a kid who runs out of your classroom, try something like this, pop into the hallway and holler after them. That's a great idea. You give that to your water and come back. See what happens. <laughs> if they still have access to language, you know what I'm saying kid after kid do? They run down the hallway, come to a halt in front of a drinking fountain. They look really confused for a second. <laughs> they get the drink of water, and they walk back to the classroom, and you say, great job, take care of your body, go ahead and sit down, and you move on. Because that behavior said, get out of here, didn't tell them what to do next. And as long as you keep it stress-free, you can be like, what do we do next? The kid's throwing something. Oh my gosh, you got a great arm. Let's see how many times you can make a basket into the trash can. And you redirect and kind of hijack that behavior. Now, the last thing that I want to share with you, because I know that it's such a concern for educators. how brains learn. And then you're going to do a lesson. And you're going to tell your students that you are so good at your jobs that you teach how brains learn and you know they all have different brains. And you work to make sure you teach the way that they need you to teach. And so that might mean that some of them need manipulatives for math and some of them need extra practice and some do this and some do that. But that also means for behavior. And so it might mean that for some kids... If something happens, you're going to call them out on it right there. For some, you might snap your fingers and point. For some, you might pull them aside later. For some, you might have them redo. But you are going to be intentional about teaching in different ways to different kids. But just because you didn't, like, call that out doesn't mean you're letting it go. And you have that lesson. Maybe you have a lesson about fairness, too, right? And then what you're going to do is when you decide in a classroom that kid is escalated, but I'm going to ignore that and move on, you point to that sign to cue your kids into that and go away. And then when you decide, okay, I'm going to have to talk about that later, you point to the sign and you keep going so that everybody realizes they're not getting away with this. I'm just teaching them how their brain actually learns. Okay? And so you can teach that way too. But the more opportunities you take to co-regulate, the more opportunities your students are going to learn and have to develop those neural structures for self-regulation. Self-regulation is repetitive experiences of internalized co-regulation. So step in, bring their stress down, and the more you do that, eventually they learn to do this with you. My contact information is up here if you need it. Thank you guys so much for your time.